Well, good morning. There are wonderful opportunities for fellowship and Bible study throughout the week. And this is another one, but this one's very important because it reaches out to our youth and our young adults through, the, through God's Word, through the study of God's Word. And so we want to be not only prayerful but supportive of that ministry. This morning we are entering what is the second section of the book of Genesis. I've mentioned to you before, and I'll mention it again, that the, the book of Genesis is broken up into accounts, or in the Hebrew, Toledoth, in the Greek, Genesis, generations, if you will. And we've already looked at the generations of the heavens and the earth. And now, we're looking at the generations of Adam. So this is now the account that would have been recorded by Adam and passed down through the generations from one recorder of history to the next until ultimately Moses collected all of these accounts, all of these uh, generational accounts, and compiled them into the book of Genesis under divine inspiration. But here we are now, and of course, you know, so many people look at this and they don't understand the structure of the book of Genesis, and so right away they try to find fault and they critique and they say, well, see, now there's a second account of creation. Well, there's only one creation, and there are separate accounts because the first account was the generations of the heavens and the earth. It was all about creation, communicated by the only one who could have communicated that, and that is God. And now we have the generations of Adam. And some of this, of course, would have been conveyed from God to Adam directly, but most of what was recorded here, Adam was a part of and witnessed and experienced. And so this is his account, his personal account, of what happened in terms of his own creation, the creation of Eve, and also the the establishing of marriage, which we'll look at next week, and then, of course, even the fall of mankind. And So we'll make our way all the way up, right up to chapter 5, verse 1, and all of this is, again, the generations of Adam. In this section, we're going to see that today, as we just look at the fact that the Lord God formed man, we're just going to look at that, that God had an explicit and, and definite purpose in creating man and mankind. But it starts with man, one man, Adam. And as we look at this account today, I think you'll see more than anything else that we serve a personal God, a God who desires to have a relationship with us. With that, let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we desire that relationship with you by faith. We desire to know you, to grow closer to you, And we've all fallen short of the glory of God, each and every one of us, born with a sin nature that we inherited from Adam. Oftentimes, we choose the very wrong things, and Lord, then we come before your presence and we ask for you to forgive us, to touch our hearts and make us the people that you called us to be. And that can only happen through your son's sacrifice on the cross, the second Adam, who came to die on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day, that we might have life eternal. And so, Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit. We ask for that truth of the the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and his resurrection to be in our hearts today, even as we celebrate communion today and receive the Lord's Supper. May that truth of forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation be in our hearts as we look at the creation of the first man. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen? Okay, let's take a look at the first seven Uh, excuse me, not the first seven verses, first few verses, picking up in chapter 2 of the book of Genesis, in verse 4, the latter part of verse 4. 
where we left off last week, we read there, that when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, of course, that is communicated from God to Adam. God communicated the creation of man to man. But from there on in, we're going to see that everything that's mentioned in this section, Adam was aware of. Adam experienced. And not that it's more important to mention that there's history that's communicated directly by God and history that is communicated uh, by God through men and women, those who who experienced it, it is experience that helps us to understand that people were there. But it's no less important to recognize that even though up to this point, everything that we've talked about, everything that we've really looked at would have been communicated by God to man, it's, it's reliable. It's God's word. It's trustworthy. And in that first study, that first section of, of, of Genesis, we took the time to look at the science. We'll look at it a little today as well so that we understand we're not non-scientific. Uh, it's not that the Bible's a, a science book, but we are looking at it and recognizing that science and scientific observation bears out the truth of Scripture. It doesn't conflict with it. Now, In this section, we're first told that the Lord God formed a man. Now, up until this point, we've been talking about God, and the word that's been used in Hebrew is Elohim. The word Elohim, it's the Godhead. It's a plural word. It's the Elohim, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is holy, 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 who created the universe. But here, the Lord God, the Lord, that word Lord, is a different word. And the two words are put together, Lord God. We have Jehovah or Yahweh Elohim. Now, I say Jehovah or Yahweh because we don't really know how to pronounce the name of God. We know the letters. We know the consonants, if you will. We don't really even know the vowels. All we know is that it's Y-H-V-H in Hebrew. And so because of that, some have said Yahweh. Some have said Jehovah. I'm partial to Jehovah. But regardless, the name of God was considered so holy by the Jews that they never really pronounced it all that much. And in most of the scriptures in the Masoretic texts, they had vowel markings in the margins to help you understand how to pronounce what is a language that's written with consonants and not very parsed. It's, it's kind of just written out in, in a very numeric fashion. This made it easy to copy. And because all of the letters have numeric equivalents, they were able to write it in such a way that they could actually use accounting to make sure that it was correct. So they would add numbers down the columns and across, and this allowed them, like a, like a balance sheet, to recopy texts and then check the numbers and know whether or not they missed anything. And that's one of the reasons why we have such accurate recordings of Scripture from the Jews. The Masoretic texts were preserved uh, in a wonderful way, uh, it, with such precision, And that's one of the reasons why. But having said that, as a consequence, we don't know how to pronounce the name of God. But we do know the word in Hebrew, either either Jehovah or Yahweh, the Lord God. So let's say you have Jehovah, Elohim. 
in that verse right there. Now, why two names for God? Well, again, Elohim in plural is a plural word. It means the Godhead. But Jehovah is the Lord. It, it means that it, this is the personal God that Adam or Adam would have a relationship with. So yes, he's the God who created the universe, but he's also the Lord who is our personal God. And, and just right there, you could just take a step back and consider the truth of that, the magnitude of that truth. Think about it. The God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who created the universe, but also the Lord God, the God who desires to have a relationship with you, with each and every one of us. That's quite a contrast. Creating the universe and yet wanting to have a relationship with his creation. It's important because as we enter this section, remember Adam is recording this, and the first thing he wants us to know is that this is the God that created all things, but this is also his personal God. And I hope and pray that each and every one of you, every one of us, has not only a reverence for God who created all things, but also a personal relationship with God who not only created all things, but sent his son to die that you might have a relationship with him. Amen? Very important truth. This took place before the land had produced any vegetation from seed. Now, some people look at that and say, but wait a minute, uh, that doesn't make sense. Uh, uh, The plants were created before man. Well, that's not what's being said here. Clearly, what's being communicated is that the earth, which had been landscaped with varieties of plants and trees, fully mature plants and trees. Think about if you hired a landscape designer and they came in with a truck and they sort of planted all of these bushes that were already fully grown or at least mature. But what we're being told here is that the land had not yet produced anything from seed. It hadn't continued to propagate after God had planted the earth with the trees and the plants. Fully mature plants and trees were planted in rich soil, and these plants and trees could self-propagate because God designed them to do so. They still do so today. But remember, it had only been three days. So at this point, given the natural life cycles of plants, although I think weeds could probably do it quickly, but remember, there were no weeds yet. So now we're, or at least they were not uh, in a fallen world, that there weren't the thorns and the thistles that so so thrive in our world and in our gardens today. What we had here was a very young earth. And it had only been three days since God had landscaped the earth. And so now all of this gets back to that principle I've mentioned a number of times, this principle of mature creation or creation of apparent age. I always look at, and we'll look at it today, when Adam was created, he wasn't created as a toddler. He wasn't hatched from an egg, you know? He, he, he wasn't uh, born in the way that each and every one of us have been born. And the first plants were created and planted in the same way. They, they didn't come from seed, nor did animals come from eggs. They were created mature. That's the way God created everything, and he said it was very good. But it was also created with the ability to procreate and to continue the, the creative processes that God had already put in place. So if you understand that as the way God created all things, then there's no room for evolution. There's no room for the other scientific theories that dispute that truth of Scripture. But remember, this is very early on, and mankind wasn't there yet. So 
looking at this, all of this seems to be taking place on the sixth day, all of it we're looking at today, right before man was created. Now let's understand something, because in verses 5 and 6 we learn something. We learn that the climate of the antediluvian world, now when we say antediluvian, that's a fancy word, it means before the flood. Antediluvian. The climate of the antediluvian world was like a giant rainforest. Now, I don't know if you've ever had an opportunity to be in or near a rainforest. Those of you who've been to El Junque in Puerto Rico know that there is a rainforest on U.S. soil. Uh, I I suppose in in Hawaii, I've never been to Hawaii, but I'm sure that they have the rainforest there too. But, But look at this. Is that not an ideal climate for the growth of plants and the thriving of animals? Think about it. Think about what happens in a jungle like that. Uh, there's plenty of water. It, it kind of rains, but, but it's more than just the climate that we experience with seasons. It's a state of almost perfect uh, ecosystem where the plants have all they need, the animals have what they need. And sadly, places like the Amazon today and other forests throughout our planet are being torn down to our own detriment. I mean, I'm not going to start preaching save the forest or save the whales today, but it's horrible that we as mankind, rather than having dominion over God's creation, have sought to destroy it and exploit it to our own detriment. And though our air quality is affected by it and our environment is infected, we, we just continue to do the wrong things with the blessed gift that the earth is to mankind. But in the rainforest-like environment of the pre-flood world, it wouldn't truly rain. We're told there it, it didn't rain. It hadn't rained on the earth. And I'm trying to explain to you that the climate was very different. So it wouldn't truly rain until the great flood, and that's in Genesis 7. The water cycle was from underground rather than from the atmosphere. So the water vapor that surrounded the sky that we talked about in Genesis 1, it, it prevented precipitation. There, there wasn't the precipitation from the clouds that we experience today. It maintained a uniform temperature over the whole earth. This was a, an ideal, pristine environment, and we're told that here mostly because anyone who would be reading this after Adam and Eve wouldn't have a clue uh, until, well, for a while until the flood. And then the flood, of course changed everything. And so Noah and his descendants may have remembered some of it before the flood, but after the flood, no one understood at all what the world was like. So rain today is dependent on global circulation of the atmosphere, the winds, the things that we understand and see and measure and observe. And water evaporates from the ocean, and it's transported inland, and it condenses and precipitates on the land, and hopefully not tomorrow while we're having a barbecue. But we do need rain. It's part of the life cycle of the earth. The circulation is driven by uh, worldwide temperature differences. A very different earth, a very different planet. Of course, this would be impossible with a uniform global temperature. So why am I going to this extent? Why did Adam mention this? Because you and I, we need to know the earth was very different. And this helps us to understand why we observe through the, through the records of the fossils and, 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 and the flood, why we observe larger creatures, immense sizes, plant life, things that were just so different than the world we observe today. It was a different planet in many ways. Now, there were no men living on the earth to cultivate the land either. And that's a part of why 
I'm not, God created us to have dominion over the earth, but one of the reasons we were created was to cultivate the earth, or at least to, to enjoy the blessings of the earth. Uh, we are tied to the earth. We come from the earth. This, this is our, our, our planet. This is our world that God created for us and gave us as mankind dominion over. And so that's part of the process. We're part of the system. Uh, and to see it differently is wrong. There's a, a way of thinking today, which they look at the earth as a goddess, and they look at us on this planet as parasites. Now, I'm not disputing the fact that many times we abuse the environment that God blessed us with, but I'm saying that we're a part of this ecosystem. We were designed to be at the top of the food chain, if you will. We were designed to take care of the earth, not to destroy it. And so to see human beings as a parasite on the earth, and if, oh, this earth would be so much better off if human beings just weren't on it, well, that just doesn't jive or, or make any sense with Scripture. And so the earth watered itself through small streams of water in a mist. Let's talk a little bit about that in uh, Job 20, uh, excuse me, Job 36. It talks a little bit about the, the, the cycle of precipitation, but this was the local daily cycle of evaporation and condensation. That way, everything had what it needed. If you ever walk down the aisle of a supermarket in the produce section, and all of a sudden, that mist comes to... You know what I'm talking about? Freaked me out the first time I, I saw that. Have you ever been to the Rainforest Cafe? Anybody? Okay? And, you, you know, you bring the kids, and they have all those animals and everything, and then all of a sudden, like every 20 minutes the thunder starts, it gets dark, there's lightning, and all of a sudden, that's a little of what I imagine it to have been like. This idea that this mist just took care of everything because God had created it so. A very different world than we're accustomed to. And so water vapor was brought about by these day and night temperature cycles, and what a wonderful place it must have been to live. Now, this was written retrospectively by Moses, where Moses is at least including Adam's account, and he's sharing it for the benefit of of us, for readers who would never know this otherwise. Um, We only understand the necessity of precipitation. So when someone writes, and it hadn't rained on the earth, we think, how could that be? We know places on our planet where it doesn't rain, and life does not exist. It doesn't thrive. But now we understand things were different. Also, mankind was required to cultivate the fields for food. And it's mentioned there. That's part of how we survive. Now, I don't know if anyone here has ever done any farming. Maybe some of you do gardening, and maybe you do some growing of vegetables on your, on your property. Maybe some of you grew up in farmland, and you understand the process. Most of us would be in really big trouble if we suddenly had to grow all of our own food, let's be honest. But back then, that became the way of life for mankind after the fall, that they had to cultivate the ground. And again, for those years up to Noah, there was no rain, but the, the, the ground was watered through this mist, and it was watered as God designed it. But still, mankind had to grow his own food, is my point. And then after the flood, things changed drastically, and then it became much more difficult But we would be in trouble, wouldn't we, if suddenly someone says, you can't go to that supermarket that has that little mist. You can't do that. You you, you want peppers? You got to grow them. You want fruit? You got to grow it. We would be in trouble. 
But understand that the people reading this, all of us, we, we wouldn't understand this because we can't imagine living in a world where you don't have to fend for yourself. The idea of the earth watering itself was completely foreign to them, and it's foreign to us. But it was obvious at this point in God's creation that man was the missing component. We were what was missing at this point in verse 6. And so we read in verse 7, it says, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So his body was formed, and then life entered his body when God breathed life into him. God formed the man's body from the dust of the ground. Now, in Hebrew, the word for the dust of the ground is Adam. And so that's why we refer to him as Adam, because it describes exactly where he came from. And that's not hard to understand. He was formed out of the earth's elements. And so when we analyze our bodies and the materials that that make us who we are, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, all of these things which come from our environment are also present in all of us. So that's why I said we are very much part of this planet, part of this earth. We came from it. We were created from it by God. And so we're connected to it. And the plants and the animals were formed from the same materials. And we saw that in chapter one. So we observe a a, a composition of matter that's consistent. I say that so you understand everything in creation is as God created it, very similar and made of the same elements because that's exactly how God did it. In fact, another scientific principle is the unity of physical composition. The unity of physical composition. It's kind of a fancy way of saying what I've already explained. That everything seems to belong. It all seems connected because it is connected and God created us from the same stuff. It's a scientific fact And we recognize it in science, but it was actually predicted by Scripture. That is, Scripture told us before we could analyze the elements in our bodies and in our environment and in the animals and in the plants, before we could prove, if you will, the physical composition, the unity of physical composition, the Bible told us it was so. Science continues to observe these things that the Bible, without microscopes and without DNA molecule observation and recordings of of all the genes in our body, all the science that is is available to us today, all it really does is prove what the Bible has been saying all along. Can I hear an amen? I think it's pretty cool, and I like to mention those things. Okay, enough science class for now. God not only formed the man's body out of the dust of the ground, he gave him life. He gave him life by breathing his life into the man. Remember we talked about Mankind was made in the image and likeness of God. We talked about the image referring to his spiritual nature and the likeness, his physical nature, his emotional nature. But the image of God speaks of his spiritual nature. In fact, the word for breath in this scripture here in verse 7 is neshama, and it's the same word for spirit. It's the same word. So he breathed his spirit, not just his breath, his spirit. Sometimes referred to as the breath of God or the Ruach Elohim. This idea of God's spirit, God's breath being breathed in to, the, the, to create a spiritual being, the Neshama. Animals also possess this. They, they possess a breath and a soul, but they, we call that the Nefesh. It's not the Neshama. It's different. It's different. Animals are different. Their, their souls are different. They don't really have that spiritual nature that we have. 
Man's breath was imparted to him by God directly. Directly. We read that here. This wasn't recorded in in chapter 1 so much because now this is Adam's account of how he was created. And so it's more important for him to convey this truth. It wasn't indirectly given to man. It was directly given to man. Do you see that? All all you can, can observe in this section of the book of Genesis, it all speaks of a personal relationship with God. From the opening sentence, when, when the Lord God, Jehovah Elohim, to the creation of man, all has this very personal, relational nature. It's as if, and I believe it is true, that the Holy Spirit wants us to know that that's what God desires to have with us. A very personal relationship. Now, Genesis 1 wasn't about the personal relationship that man has with God. It was about the creation of the universe. But this section teaches us that God desires to have that relationship with each and every one of us. And that is the most important part of our lesson today, understanding that truth. Okay, so all of this tells us that the creation account is in contradiction with evolution. See, man was created as he is today. He is not evolving, as science has tried to tell us. Man has evolved. No, man was created, mature creation, as he is, a living being. So what God did was set mankind up pretty well. I don't know if you remember, it's probably a long time for some of you, but if you remember the first time you moved out of your house, maybe it was when you went to college and you were in a dorm, or maybe it was when you got married and you moved into an apartment, or maybe you just moved out. But if you remember when you set up camp for the first time, you know, you're moving out of your parents' house, hopefully not into their basement, and you, you moved out, you know, and you, you got your own place, and you, you got to decorate the way you wanted to, and you set up what you believed to be the ideal environment for you to thrive. Ah, who needs a bed? I'll just throw the mattress on the floor. Guys, why bother putting the food in the pantry? I'll save myself the step and just leave it on the table. You you, you know, when we first moved out into our own environment, it served us and where we were at the time. The environment that God created for mankind served him well. And look at what we read here. I'm going to read verses 8 through 14. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon, and it winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold that of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there, we're told. Uh, the name of the second river is the Gihon, and it winds through the entire land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, and it runs along the east side of Asher, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now remember, this is being recorded by Adam about a world that no longer exists. So some of the names are similar to rivers that were named later, but all of it points to what the world was like before the flood. And Adam lived in that world. 
for almost 900, a little over 900 years. So understand, that's why that's being shared with us. But again, it doesn't help us define the Garden of Eden because since the flood, that is lost. We, we don't know exactly where it was. We have a general idea of where it may have been, but we, don't, we certainly don't know where it was. After the world was deluged by the flood and largely destroyed or changed, you have to understand the Garden of Eden could have been, if you will, anywhere, as the planet has changed so drastically. But this garden was specifically designed for Adam. It was his home. It was the place that God had designed for him to live and to be. It was evidently east of where he had first received consciousness. He was able to live there uh, as God had planted a beautiful garden for his home. God made a place for him. Does that sound familiar to any of you? I go to prepare a place for you. If it wasn't true, I wouldn't have said it. See, God is preparing a place for us in heaven, but he prepared a place on earth for man. And it was a perfect place. It was a wonderful place, kind of place we like to go on vacation, if we describe it as the Bible looks at it here. Now, why is that important? Because it was a paradise. It's called the paradise. Eden. Eden very much in our minds means paradise. It's the idea of the perfect place to be and to live. Now, in the future, the Garden of Eden will be restored. We saw that when we got to the end of our study in the book of Revelation. There's the Garden of Eden is restored and the trees are back in place and everything's just the way it started out, the way God designed it. And we're looking forward to that day when God, who has prepared a place for us in eternity, will welcome us into his presence. Again, do you see the accent, the highlight of relationship in this passage? It's all about relationship. Relationship with man and God. That relationship. It was a beautiful environment, but it was also a source of food and nourishment. Remember that Adam, if we go back to chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, he had been instructed to rule the whole earth from this garden paradise called Eden. But God placed two special trees in the middle of the garden, and we're told that specifically. There was the tree of life, which, by the way, is not a metaphor. It's an actual tree with real fruit. I don't believe it was an apple, first of all. I'm not, I like apples. They're okay, Some, but, but not my favorite fruit. But I will tell you that I don't know where or how we got stuck on this idea of it being an apple, because that would mean, you know, that if that was the, the fruit, then, then if you would eat it today, it would still be the tree of life. Of course, it's not. Some people look at pomegranates for some reason and feel that that is the fruit. Uh, here's, here's the thing. We've been separated from the tree of life. We have no idea what the fruit was like, you know? If I, if I had to pick, I'd say a mango, but it doesn't matter because it's all just theory. We have no idea what this fruit was, We just know that it was good. The tree of life was an actual tree. Its properties of the the fruit, the properties, would have enabled even mortal man to live indefinitely. This may seem as mythical and as far-fetched as the fountain of youth, which Ponce de Leon sought to find in the New World, and specifically in the area of Florida, and he never found it because he's no longer here. Well, here's what we know. The basic physiological cause of aging and death eludes us. Do you know that? We don't really know or completely understand what causes aging. 
Ah, could you say that, Pastor Tim? Well, no one's been able to turn it back, have they? I mean, they have all these little things that they try to do to, I'm going to offend somebody. Ah, but so what? They have all these things that they do, you know, inject you with these poisons to try to make you look like an alien, perhaps. I'm not sure exactly, but it doesn't really work. You can use these creams. You can, but at the end of the day, you're aging. Have you noticed? There's really not much you can do about it. I read a recent uh, article that we're talking about. They think they found the gene, you know, that they, they can turn off aging. That kind of frightens me. For one thing, that we'd never get rid of any senators or congressmen or presidents. But what I do understand is that as we age, we recognize our mortality and our need for a savior. Now, if we were perfect, we wouldn't need a savior, but we're not, and so we do. Can you imagine, what is mankind really trying to do here? By trying, well, try to live forever, obviously, right? Oh, we want to live forever with all of the potions and all of the things that man tries to do to stay young. What he's really trying to do is eliminate God. Because if we can just live forever, we don't need to even talk about God or heaven or eternity or an afterlife, or moral accountability for that matter. We just want to live forever. And yet, when we were created, we did. And sin brought about death. The wages of sin is death. And now we're separated from God, but through Jesus Christ, we can live forever. Amen? Whoever believes in him will never see death. He said that himself in John's gospel. What does that mean? It means that we are going to a place that God has prepared for us. He who is the way, the truth, and the life. So there is a hope for us, and it's not in things like Botox and special creams. It's in Jesus Christ. And our new bodies, our resurrected bodies, are going to be so much better than anything this world can promise us, and yet the world is out there trying to turn off genes and try to make us live forever in our decrepit state of sin and death. And I hope to God it never happens, and they never find it whatever it is that causes aging. I have a theory that it's sin that causes aging. <laughs> I mean, pretty biblically based, and so I don't think anyone's been able to stop sinning. Anyone here have a perfect week? I don't think so. How about a perfect morning? Um, how about the last hour, you know? So, you know, I, I just, I say that because it's so obvious to me that Mankind apart from God, he just wants to eliminate God. Just get God out of the way, and this is one of the ways he'd like to do it. But in this garden, there was this fruit, and this fruit seems to have been able to sustain mankind in such a way. It's called the tree of life, and it becomes a symbol of eternal life. In the book of Revelation, when we talk about the tree of life, it's a symbol of life eternal in Jesus Christ. But the chemical substance that was in this would prevent aging. A chemical substance could exist that would prevent aging, and if, if it did, then it certainly was in this fruit. It would have to stabilize all metabolic processes in the body, which we can't do. But if it did, you'd live forever. <clears throat> and that's what mankind's trying to do right now through science. Good luck with that. There was also a tree of knowledge, a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this was also an actual tree, with a real fruit. I'm not sure what you could say in terms of what kind of fruit 
It was, but it wasn't an ugly fruit, and it wasn't a fruit that didn't taste good. It was something attractive and appealing, as we'll look at in future studies. But they were told not to partake, not to eat of this fruit. Its properties contained a chemical substance, clearly, that would cause aging. So if we knew what this was, you probably wouldn't eat it anyway. But it would have to catalyze the physiological decay processes of the body in order for that to happen, and clearly it did. Eating this fruit would enable man to gain the knowledge of evil, but evil is fundamentally a rejection of God's word. And clearly they were told not to eat. At least Adam was told here. Eve hasn't been created yet. But man had abundant knowledge of the good things that God had created. And yet he wanted more. He wanted knowledge of evil, things that God didn't desire for him to even think about. And of course, disobedience to God's word would itself bring a knowledge of evil. What is it that they wanted? Independence from God. To be able to think for themselves in a way that God wouldn't think. To do things that God would never do. To act in a way that God had not called them to act or would allow them to act apart from him. So you see, we suffer the result of sin, which is a rebellion against God and his word. In this case, they had one commandment, one. Under the law, we ended up with ten. Jesus summarized it as two. The Jews have hundreds of laws, but all of it comes down to this, obey God. Amen? Obey God. Well, we're told that a river watered the garden, and that became the source of four major rivers at that time. Of course, again, the geography does not correspond to anything in this present world. It's true that some of the names were used after the flood. That doesn't surprise me at all. But the flood was so cataclysmic that this geography was obliterated. So you're not going to find a map of Eden. But the similarity of certain names may be the work of Noah and his sons, who lived in this world pre-flood and saw these four rivers. And when the floodwaters dried up and they began to live on the earth for hundreds of years, they found other rivers, at least two of them, the Tigris and the Euphrates, in the area that they were in. And they named them after the rivers that are mentioned by Adam here in chapter 2. So not the same rivers, not even close. The source of these four rivers could not have been rainfall, because we already were told it hadn't rained. So they must have been fed by artesian springs or or controlled fountains. And uh, rivers oftentimes start from a source, a very small source. Uh, We were just with the Coppolas. They were over in Minnesota where the Mississippi River begins. And it begins from a very small source, and then it becomes a mighty river. Well, you know, many rivers start that way, from underground springs or mountain springs. It's not always rainfall. And that was the case here. Also, this implies a network of subterranean pressurized reservoirs, that is, water under the ground. And that comes up when we get to the flood, because we're told that the floodgates of the heavens, the expanse, open up, but also that the great springs of the deep burst forth. And so when the flood comes, the reason that the world of that day was able to be deluged is because you've got water coming from the heavens, you've got water coming from the ground, and very quickly, the land, which I imagine was very flat at that time, or much flatter than it is today, mountains were formed through the flood, that at that point it flooded rather quickly. But we'll get to that when we get to future studies. Anyway, the next thing we learn here in verses 15 through 17 is that God put the man in the Garden of Eden. 
That was the place he was supposed to be. You know, before we go forward, I, I just want to say that that's where Adam was designed to be. That's what he was designed for, to be in a place like this. Where are you called to be? What has God designed you, uniquely designed you to do? What kind of place are you called to be? Missionaries oftentimes have a burden for a particular country or climate or place or environment or culture because they feel they've been built and made to be in that culture. And so, so many people may be raised in an affluent culture, but then they think, well, wait a minute, I feel as if I really should be in Asia or Africa or South America. It's because God has designed them to be in a place that he's called them to. Where has God called you to be? You know, I mean, some people have very grand visions. I mean, I was born in Passaic, literally, in, the, in a hospital that no longer exists, Beth Israel. And you know something? Now I'm preaching in Passaic, so I guess that's where I'm called to be. I grew up right across the river in East Rutherford. But this is where God has called me to be. That's not the only place I've stayed. I spent many years in New York City doing ministry and been all over Central America. But you know what? This is where I'm called to be. Now, is it Eden? No. But it's the place that God has called me to be. Each and every one of us have to figure that out for ourselves. We have to look to God and say, God, where have you called me to be? What have you called me to do? And that may change over time. You may spend 10 years, 20 years in one place, and then God moves you on. But at this point in time, Adam knew he was called to be in this garden. It's the place that God had created for him and the place that God had called him to be. So we read in verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but... You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And that much we know. How it works, we don't, but that much we do know. He was given responsibility. I think it's important to know that uh, heaven isn't not having any responsibility. Paradise isn't a place where you don't have to work. There is a curse in work that comes later, but there's a work that God has for each and every one of us to do that's not a result of a curse. It's a blessing. It's the blessing of God. God has called you to do things, and some of that may be your profession, taking care of your family, or whatever it is that God has called you to do. It's not a curse. Don't, Don't look at that as a curse. It's a blessing. He was called, this was his job, you ready? He was to take care of the garden. That was his responsibility. He was called to gather the fruit of God's work around him. It was God's work, but he was called to gather the fruit. Does that sound familiar? Isn't that what we're called to do? Aren't we, in the spirit, supposed to look at the work that God does and gather the fruit? Say amen if you understand what I'm trying to tell you here today. It's God's work in us, but the fruit of God's work is what we gather. That's the principle of why we're here. If you think that you have to do the work, then you've forgotten the scripture we mentioned last week where he told us that he does the work, right? The work, the labor, it's easy. His burden is easy. It's light. He's come to give us rest. And there is rest in gathering the fruit of God's work. So... He was called to diligently serve God without idleness, 
We have a tendency to think of paradise as just kicking back in a beach chair and having people bring you drinks. That's, that's, that's not paradise. But he was free to enjoy all the fruit of the garden with only one exception. That's the one rule. He was commanded not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but he was called to care for the tree while abstaining from the fruit. And see, that's the difficult thing. When God calls us to do something and not do something, and we have to interact with the thing that we're not supposed to eat from or be involved with, but we still have to interact with it, right? There he is in the garden. He's got to take care of the tree. He's got to look at the tree, walk around the tree, be near the tree, but he can't eat of the tree. That's called temptation. God designed it that way. It was part of the process of giving man free will. This presented him with a choice to exercise his free will. Listen, God could have easily prevented him from eating this fruit. He could have chopped down the tree. He could have put up a big fence. He could have electrified the tree so no one could get near it. But God was giving man a choice. This requires discipline and obedience to God's word, which was don't eat. Are you seeing a principle here? Say amen. Seeing the principle. It's the same for us. It's, it's not any different. Yeah, I mean, we, 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 we gather the fruit of God's work. God does the work, we gather the fruit. But we still are faced with the temptations of this world, the temptations that God has allowed to be in place. And we still have to make a choice. And God has made it that way. Oh, God, why do you make it so difficult? There's too many temptations in this world. That's the world we live in. It gives us an opportunity to make the right choice. So you trying to keep your kids from making bad choices, it's important at a certain age that they have the opportunity to make the wrong choices. What? Can you say that to Christian people? Can you say that to Christian parents? Can you, can you tell them that their kids are going to have to be given the opportunity to make choices? We can't have that now. That's why we homeschool our kids, right? No. You're teaching your kid what's right so that when they're old, they don't depart from it. You're giving them the truth, so when they have to make a choice, hopefully, they'll choose to do the right thing. Just saying, God was the perfect parent, and his kids didn't do so well. So if you think you're the perfect parent, and your kids aren't doing so well, join the club. Jesus had 12 disciples. One of them didn't do very well. I think many times, parents, you put too much pressure on yourselves. You think that you're responsible for your children's choices. You're not. It's called free will. God gave it to us. And you need to help them to make the right choices, but you can't choose for them. And God didn't choose for Adam either, as we'll see. Well, this presented that choice. And, you know, we call this the sovereignty of man, his free will, but in no way, in no way does it diminish the sovereignty of God. God is still sovereign, but he gives man sovereignty over his free will, and yet he doesn't lose any sovereignty in the process. That is, God is in control. Amen? Now, to disobey God's command, the one command he was given, would be an evil act of sinful rebellion, simply because God said so. But what if God knew the truth? And of course he does. That if they actually did eat of this fruit, it was poisonous. That it would actually cause the metabolic changes that would bring about death. And what if he, knowing it was a bad thing and that it would hurt man, said, don't eat of that tree? And he did anyway. 
See, I want you to see it's not God saying, oh, there's this beautiful fruit and I don't want you to have it just because I don't want to mess with your head, you know? No. God tells us what's sin so we can avoid what hurts us. All sin fits into this category. Anything that God says is sin is bad for you. And your children need to understand that. The reason that you're saying something is sinful is because it's bad. It will hurt them. They may still choose to do some of these things, but that's the definition of sin. It's not sin just because God says so. It's sin because it hurts us and God loves us. And why would he ever want us to do anything that would bring harm to us? Hopefully that helps you understand a little bit about sin and what it really is. Sinful rebellion against God will always bring certain death. Now, man would die spiritually, being separated from God's direct fellowship, but he would also begin to die physically with the initiation of aging. And God certainly knew that man would choose to die, yet he did not interfere. I'm going to repeat that. God certainly knew that man would choose to die through rebellion, and yet he did not interfere. One more time, he did not interfere. He did not interfere. This was necessary to allow man to choose death and reject life, which is a consequence of him having free will. But notice, Christ came to provide us with another choice, as I asked the worship team to come up. The choice of life in him. We have a choice, and we can choose life. Adam's death cost him his life, his physical life. But Christ's death has given us life. This was necessary to allow man to choose life and reject death. I pray that each and every one of us understand the personal relationship that God wants to have with us. The commands that he's given us to reject sin and receive him are not to keep us from having a good life. It's to bless us with a great life. A life eternal. The tree of life, if you will. And as we receive communion, we can remember this truth. The truth that God sent his own son, the second Adam, to die on the cross for our sins. So that we can have a relationship with him. But he rose again. And there's your tree of life. For he hung on a tree to give us life. Life has been made available to us for all eternity in the person of Jesus Christ. And you need only choose a relationship with him. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, that's exactly right. We desire a relationship with you. And as we receive communion this morning, may we make that active choice. May we be saying in our hearts, not not because we're in the garden and we have a choice between two trees, but because we have a choice between death and life, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Lord, because we have that choice, we choose life. We choose you and to have life in you. These elements represent your body and blood. Your body broken, your blood shed for us. And as we partake of them, may we celebrate the life we have in you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.